musicology for me looked like a zone, even though musicology, part of the demographics is 95% white, you know, um, but it's still a zone where there's significant possibilities for change. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin. If you're an avid listener to our podcast, and I hope that you are, you'll recall my conversation with Lauren Kajikawa a few weeks back about the degree to which race and musical genre are intertwined, how the exclusion of popular music from music schools also implies the exclusion of African-American music from those same schools. This problem goes back to the early history of popular music in the United States, but it's also one that has significant implications for non-popular music. Back in 1996, the composer George Lewis wrote a groundbreaking article titled Improvised Music After 1950. In it, Lewis examined how two worlds of American radical musicians emerged in the post-war years, both of which centered around improvisation. Musicians in the tradition of John Cage, who engaged with indeterminacy and the realization of graphic scores in real time, and musicians in the tradition of Charlie Parker, who engaged with bebop and the realization of complex harmonic structures, or chord changes, in real time. It was not a coincidence, Lewis argued, that these worlds were separated not just by genre, but by race. Despite the commonalities that they shared, the post-Parker lineage of black experimentalists were labeled commercial jazz, and the post-Cajian lineage of white experimentalists were seen as inheritors to the tradition of Western art music. This separation, this segregation, has had a profound effect on how we understand the history of American music and how contemporary musicians understand themselves. And Lewis witnessed these developments firsthand as a longtime member of the AACM, or the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, a pioneering collective of black experimental composers that arose on the south side of Chicago in the 1960s. His history of the AACM, A Power Stronger Than Itself, is one of my absolute favorite books about music. Lewis's musicological work has been profoundly influential on my own research and writing. He's also one of my favorite living composers, and I'm very lucky to be hosting him for this conversation, where we'll be talking about his recent work as a musician and scholar, and how it fits into his broader ways of thinking about music over many decades. So... I wanted to start um, with a recent essay that you wrote about curation and a project um, in which you kind of curated this exhibit of Afro-diasporic music um, at Darmstadt. Can you talk a little bit about what that project was and kind of what impelled you to to work on it? Well, I was invited by the the defragmentation group, which was composed of four curators of contemporary music events and festivals, I thought that one useful thing would be to develop, um, I call it a listening room, a couple of listening rooms. And uh, because it did seem to me, it didn't take much research to find out that Afro-diasporic composers were not really very well represented. I think the... um, there was a percentage that they came up with at Darmstadt in 2016 with the uh, GRID group, the Gender Relations in Darmstadt group, 
where they ascertained that about seven the commissions about of the of the commissions given to composers about seven percent of them were women in terms of uh, being commissioned or performed. I mean, the corresponding number for black Afro-diasporic composers would be like, I forget what it was, 0.5% or something incredible. I think you number. said 0.04% of the total. Yeah, yeah, which of, amounted of composers to... composers com performed at Darmstadt, yeah. Which amounted to um, uh, two people before 2018. Right, and it's worth uh, saying this is obviously like one of the most premier festivals for contemporary music in Europe too, right? This is not just some rinky-dink thing. It's known around the world. And uh, I don't think that the numbers, if you're judging from that, are any different for other festivals. Right. So I think it's to their credit that they decided to really think about it and take some steps. But um, And then I think I might have been number three after Alvin Singleton in 1973 and Andile Kumalo in 2008, I think in 2018, uh, they did a piece of mine, they did a piece of Lester St. Louis's, and one other. So that so there might be up to five now. Um, I don't think Don Ashingen has done any. So so what we're looking at are very low numbers. And so uh, in a way, and now that it can be told, really, I developed a listening and viewing room, which ran all day uh, during the conference, air for four straight days, which people could just listen to uh, some of the people that could have been programmed <laughs> on some of these festivals, you know, right. amazing people, the, the, the lacunae, some very famous people like, um, you know, Ollie Wilson or Anthony Braxton or Tanya Leon or, you know, I mean, some very well-known people, uh, were never even considered for this. And, um, so we just had this, had examples of the scores and we had videos were available and people could just sit and listen and watch. And there was a list of who was on, who was being pre presented. So the list, I wouldn't say it went viral. I don't really know because I don't <laughs> use face, I don't use Facebook or sure. anything. And so, um, basically, people started asking me about it. And um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you'd like to ask about something else. But that was the that was the basic of the basics of it to try to get more awareness for this obvious lacuna in. Uh, the historiography, the programming. In other words, a whole set of people, a whole sort of large thrust in classical music was kind of left out right. over a very long period of time. And in my view, that contributes to the impoverishment of the field. And mm. since this is my field, I'm not interested in it being impoverished. And so this is a step we've taken. And it's gone further since then. We can talk about that if you like. Yeah, I mean... I'm one of the things you point out in the essay is that some of these kind of new music festivals like Dono Eschigan, which has, I guess, yet to program any Afro-diasporic composers, they do program black music, but on these kind of, of jazz nights, right? And you mentioned the, word, the, the phrase classical music, and it seems like this is a kind of fundamental issue in a lot of your work as a, a musician and scholar, the way that the work of black composers is either sequestered into this category of jazz or the category of jazz seems to override the concerns of Afro-diasporic composers? Or... You know, I don't think that's the main issue now. Uh, first of all, a lot of the people who we uh, programmed on this festival, you know, they're not jazz musicians. I mean, right. George, George Walker wasn't, Ollie Wilson really wasn't. I mean, Hale Smith, I mean, he, he had some, he had some uh, connections with it, but a lot of them were, uh, were, they were classically trained and they were they were 
literate artists in the tradition of contemporary classical music and its, and its, and its forerunners. So it seemed to me that the sequestering wasn't really the issue. It's more that, um, although that might have been an issue, but I, I, I don't think anybody who was making these kind of decisions really thought, oh, this is the jazz night or something. I, I, I see. Mean, there, there was more to it than that. It, it's the way I look at it. It's sort of like those histories. You're just not a subject in the discourse. And uh, so when you're not seen as a subject, then there's no reason to include you. It's if there's a myth of absence. Mm. So I felt there's my, I think this is the term that my former student, the musicologist and pianist composer Dana Reason created. And in her context, it was about contemporary women improvisers, but it's certainly applicable to Afro-diasporic classical composers as well. And that myth of absence uh, is not just uh, festivals in Europe. It also is part of the presence of those people in the United States, their home country. And then we have to look also, that's just the African-American side of it. So I meant to say home country, but it's not really because we're talking about a worldwide movement. I included people from Brazil. I included people from Cuba. I included people from South Africa. I included people from Cameroon, there are, uh, Nigeria. So that, that's why I said it was Afro-diasporic and not just African-American, which I could have sure. done. But it turned out to be a worldwide issue. And so it brought up ideas about Pan-Africanism and imagine a discussion of Pan-Africanism in terms of what contemporary music could be like. And you might have noticed that the article contrasted the situation in classical contemporary music with the situation in contemporary art, where we have uh, Okwi Nwazer, the late great uh, curator, Nigerian curator, the first non-white curator of the Documenta Festival, and how Documenta and other arts organizations, these kinds of issues of decolonization, uh, thinking about race and gender, uh, trying to tease out sort of thorny matters of identity politics uh, and, the, and things of that sort, uh, a very important part of art making and the discussions around art making. And uh, it seems though contemporary music uh, wasn't really addressing these issues to the same degree and the discourse wasn't quite as developed Mm. And the notion of who was a subject in the discourse that suddenly you don't have just one metropole, let's say, right. where you have multiple sites at which contemporary music emerges. And so that's part of what what we're trying to emulate in some ways. Right. When Although you s- the art people have their problems, too. <laughs> uh. When you say kind of subjecthood or being a subject. Can you flush out a little bit what you mean by that? Who who can, Who is allowed to be a subject versus who isn't, if that's the kind of framing that you're using? I guess I am thinking about subjects versus objects. And in a way, when Fred Moten, the critical theorist, talks about the resistance of the object, he's talking about the the black, black people under conditions of chattel slavery. And so where you're not really considered to be a human being. And so you could bring in people like Sylvia Winter in there. You can bring in all kinds of people. But I, I started to focus in on why it was that tour. Well, let me take another example. Let's take an um, example from the article you read about Frederick Jameson, where suddenly in the wake of a lot of post-colonial discourses and the movement for the uh, independence of African people and third world, quote unquote, people, um, Suddenly, these people became subjects, not just objects in the discourses. They became, they were people you had to reckon with. Uh, 
they they were in possession of themselves and their objects, and you had to re, and they had to be reckoned with on the international stage, and that's what I mean by being a subject. Um, it's sort of faintly philosophical, but the idea is that you are a part of the history and not just an object to be moved around or a mm, background figure or something like that. And reckoning with that, it seems like, is this kind of also leads in some ways to this backlash against, you know, quote unquote, identity politics or whatever, which. Mm, well, you know, the funny thing about identity politics, it's often assumed that the people who are demanding entry are the only identity politicians. Right. And uh, it seems to me that we identity politics are, are of prime factor in what's keeping these people out. Well, and you make, I mean, I, I really love the point you make in the article about, you know, you saw, I think in somewhere Paris or something, this poster for an exhibit of Polish avant-garde music and or art maybe. And, you know, no one says Polish, the Polish avant-garde is identity politics, right? Like, so, I mean, not. yeah, it's interesting. So what, what gets called identity politics and, and what doesn't? And it's funny because I had just come back from, from Darmstadt and that's exactly what I was trying to do. And, uh, but not for the Polish avant-garde, but for, let's say, the black pan-African or Afro-diasporic mm -hmm. avant-garde. So I didn't see any real contradiction there, any reason to treat one group differently from another. I kind of want to maybe zoom out or, or back up a little bit and, and kind of think, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these kinds of issues have shaped your kind of trajectory as a musician. And then I also want to talk about as a scholar too, since that you know, I guess music came first and then and then writing and scholarship came later. But like how, to what degree do you see your own life as a musician kind of as part of a conversation like this? Well, it's interesting because I've had several phases of, of being involved in music. Um, you know, the AACM where I sort of came to, let's say a certain kind of maturity. Um, at the time that I was in it, it was a composer's organization. I mean, it was sort of dominated by composers, which is something we don't hear a lot about, but all, but everyone was charged with creating their own compositions and, and uh, people seemed to feel that that could be involved with scores in some way, sort of like fluxes, where you always talk about fluxes, they were thinking about the score all the time, which is a very odd thing, because fluxes being so musically, musically grounded, even though it's an intermediate uh, sort of collective. Um, the ACM uh, similarly thought about scores, um, whether they were graphic scores, whether they were fully notated scores, or whatever you had. So, and it seemed to them as it seemed to me, and I just read this in a very interesting article about Julius Eastman, where I think it was Tiona Nekia McClodden, who's an uh, intermediate artist, black mm -hmm. intermediate artist. She saw a picture of Julius composing and she said, well, wow, how unusual. That's, I, I don't see pictures of black people composing. And that's a question that I put to Muha Richard Abrams when I was putting together my own book. I said, well, how come there are no pictures of you guys composing? Huh. And, you know, I, I'm not sure they'd ever thought about it in that way. You know, it was sort of like something that, because that's part of the representational matrix that uh, you start to see. Um, I've had examples of this have been legion. I, I mean, a lot of it, when you're talking about representation, representation is kind of a resource. And so I'm taking your question into what it, what you have to do in order to be recognized as a right. subject. 
it's through media, through images, through all kinds of, you know, videos, through all kinds of ways of making you apparent in a certain way. Um, so this might require a little editing, but um, I have to think what I, to what I'm doing now and work backwards. Um, I was always doing, I guess, the scholarship is a different issue. Um, it's not there's it's not the same thing as a, a life in music as a composer sure. or a performer, and so on. And and uh, what I it seemed to me that a lot of the things I was doing were similar to what a lot of my non-black colleagues were doing, but that in my case there was this sort of sequestering off in terms of genre. So I began to see that. Genre is a representational resource rather than just a means to intelligibility, which we hear a lot from from traditional and even more less traditional genre scholars. So you, I mean, I think you kind of mentioned this in the article, this idea that genre is assumed. If people see a black person, they assume jazz kind of in, in some way. Well, they don't assume that they, they don't, assume they, don't. What I, they don't assume what I'm doing. Yeah, right. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes they tell you that you're not doing that. <laughs> but you know you can't be too concerned about that sure. because everybody people you have to look for people who support you you can't be too concerned about people who don't mm -hmm. um so in the end whatever the project is my task now is to try to find other people who would who need this kind of support and who recognize the issues and who face these issues and to help them overcome them sure um but I, I interrupted you a little bit so, yeah. you know rather than Mm -hmm. complaining about how you represent it. I, I mean, it's more that you you can find ways out and a lot of the, the best ways out are, are through understanding the discourses and, and, and the nature of representation and how that operates. Right. So when I guess maybe this is a way to talk about that kind of transition from musician to scholar, which is that you, you became more aware of these discourses as a musician and you end up writing about them, right? The first article in 1996, which a lot of people still read for some odd reason, although it's far too long and I, I, a, I think it holds a up a little but... rambling, um, but it tries to address some of those issues of, of, around race and contemporary music and improvisation and composition and and this sort of overused thing now I've seen uh, Afrological, uh, Eurological. Um, there's it's not really a binary; it's just two. Rep two circuits of representation, mm. and uh, so what happens in each one, and how they actually intersect, but the intersection is very carefully policed. And just as let's say the um, the so-called miscegenation laws in the U.S. and before 1960, um, in similar ways, these kinds of mixtures, which would be at least in the U.S. context, sort of natural and very, uh, you know not anything to be really worried about, were somehow intensely policed. And I mean, the history of it is far too long to go into. Sure. Well, um, how did you get to writing that article, which is uh, Improvised Music After 1950s, like the, the headline title, but... Well, let's see. Um, I guess it was, there was a lot of stuff I had to get off my chest. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! And then I read uh, an article. It was an interview with a John Cage by Michael Zwerin, who I knew Michael Zwerin from when I lived in, in Paris. And um, and I guess he was letting Cage say all these things. I guess Cage was presumed about black music and 
he was saying these things and they didn't seem very authoritative or even factual, <laughs> but, um, but he was being allowed to say them anyway. And so that seemed to be a situation where the authority of whiteness was the most important issue rather than the authority which we developed or demonstrated by the trenchancy of one's uh, utterances. Um, so that was the um, that was the foundational, you know, burr under the saddle. And then Jan Pazer, my friend and musicologist, who was my colleague at the time, encouraged me to actually start writing something. And that's all I remember. That was the result. Um, two two pretty good things got done that year. The first was that piece, and the second was the percussion piece with North Star Boogaloo, mm. which involved hip hop and virtual virtual rapper Quincy Troop through samples and computers that deliver the text and and so on. So those got done in the same year. In a way, they're kind of similar, but you know. How I mean that, that's an interesting thing because it seems clear that there's a cross an exchange between your work as a scholar and your work as a as a musician. So like how did when you say they're related in 1996, what did that kind of mean for you? Uh, well, first I think it was a, a kind of a turn, a new awakening in a way. You know, I'd spent I'd spent five years at UCSD, and uh, a colleague showed me his work on a rather arcane. Uh, computer program for sound generation. And he said, well, this is a great thing because I'm here in the university and I can use these resources to develop things that maybe no one thinks they want at first, but might turn out to be useful for a community of some kind. And I said, well, I could do that. And so the art, that article was the first and then later the book uh, on the ACM, which was written from that same kind of attitude. But in terms of the cross fertilization between the two, a, a lot of the subjects I write about are are situations in which I've been personally involved, uh, trying to rethink interactive computer music and issues of subjectivity there, or trying to think about race, uh, or trying to think about, um, uh, you know, right now the work I'm doing on Julius Eastman, which is not nearly as, as thoroughgoing as what my colleague Elie Sam has been doing, or Mary Jane Leach, who actually put Julius's work back on the map. But I'm in there trying to bring my personal perspectives from having known him a little bit and having worked with him. And so these kinds of things, they end up, if you look at most of the articles, they're about communities in which I was able to interact with through performance or composition, but who I, also I was able to sort of step back from that and theorize what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me, and this is something I'm thinking about as I'm wrapping up my book project, is when you when you work write about living musicians especially living musicians that you know in some capacity and you kind of do the step back in theorization work it's complicated like what what has been the kind of reciprocal relationship with with your book about the aacm and and the aacm itself well for me the aacm book i was hoping that younger generation people who are inclined to these kinds of musical ideas would read this book and sort of including members of the ACM itself and see where they came from. The, mm. the book came out in 2008. The ACM started in 1965. By the time the book came out, at least one of the founding members of the ACM had passed away. And within, uh, by, by 20, by, what is it, a couple of years ago, everyone else was gone. Mm. So I was interested in them learning about those histories. And also I was interested in, 
connecting up. I saw, I could see the influence of the ACM in so many quarters of the musical landscape because I'd been in all those places. And I could see in ways that maybe some of the other people who hadn't been in all of them could see how, how widespread the influence of the ACM was and how important it was. So I, that was one of the plans to do that. And then also the ACM as a, thinking about it representationally, um, the kinds of uh, ways in which the ACM was framed, a lot of the folklore that had grown up around the ACM, the idea that it had been formed, for example, to uh, uh, sort of make some sort of intervention in the culture of jazz, that turned out to be not true. Mm. And uh, it turned out to be not true because I had, Muha Richard Abrams gave me access to the audio tapes they made of their meetings where jazz was never really discussed. Right, I remember reading <laughs> so, that. And so when you think about that, you think, well, why do we, or the idea that somehow creative music was a synonym for jazz when it was really just their way of trying to win space by naming themselves in the same way as the naming systems, people naming yourselves by taking African names or Arabic names, a, a mode of self-determination through discourse. Uh, so once you do that, uh, you, that's, I think that's part of the reason why it turned out to be a little... Well, it's amazing that people still read it after all this time, you know. Um, I mean, now it's 12 years old. Or it's a, like that, I mean, that, or it's or a great book. Like <laughs> but, but I mean, people still come up and ask me to sign the book, or I think, wow, this is very embarrassing. But, but at least it seems to have struck a chord. And the other thing I like about it is that it was not written in a particularly populist or way. I mean, it was, it's, it's a, it's an academic 700-page mm. book, <laughs> you know, and, and so a lot of people told me that people didn't want to have that kind of book and that they should have a book that would appeal to the masses or something. Mm. I said, well, what? You know, what are you talking about? I mean, the, the best part of the book was for me was that the musicians liked it. Mm. Interesting. And so this, this gets into something that you just talked about, which yeah. is the complications of writing about communities uh, that you know. And I think really one of the cardinal rules is really do no harm. You know, I mean, muckraking, all that kind of stuff, that wasn't really the point. Sure. The idea was to talk about the music. So there, there are a couple of narratives in there which are obviously people's self-fashioned fictions about themselves and their sure. upbringing. And I left those in because... I felt that was the way they wanted to be remembered. And when those people eventually passed away, I felt that some good had been done there because even the fictional narrative gave me a lot to think about in terms of the aspirations of the, of the people who formed that organization. So we need to find out about that more than the so-called truth, which is some, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking to a story, uh, maybe even a myth. Some of the stuff that I wrote about it's sort of like people ask a lot of the questions you're asking me now. I don't really remember what happened anymore. I'm almost 70 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of what I tell you almost appears to be a myth that I've, I've, I've nurtured over the decades. So I hope it's an entertaining one. That's all I can tell you. Right. I mean, well, at the same time, though, right, you're still, I guess you're, you're allowing some myths to be told because they're important to those participants. But at the same time, you're also kind of intervening in that book and into the discourse around you know what the village voice of the new york times is saying about these musicians in the 19 you know 70s or 80s or something well yes and the ethnographic component i learned a lot from reading my colleague aaron fox's book real country now there's a lot of stuff in that book that 
you have to read between the lines to find out what people are really thinking, and you know what they're thinking. But he didn't like bring it out like well, and start condemning people and, and you know calling people names and all that. Instead, it was a, a, a there was a lot to love about the scenes he was in and the people in them. And so to have that be obscured by you know these judgments that you make and trying to you know it wasn't going to work. Right. And so that's that's that was a real touchstone for me. Uh, in in working on this, like he'd been working on it for a number of years. I, I don't I don't remember when he finished it, but um, I realized that he was trying to do something similar to what I've been trying to do, and and that the the ethnographers, you know, real serious uh, academic ethnographers, have to think about these issues. Right. Yeah. So, kind of jumping forward to what you've been, what we started talking about at the beginning and, and what you've been kind of grappling more recently, which is I've seen you give a couple talks about this and, and the, um, the shorter essay as well as the curation essay, the subject of the Creole. Can you talk a little bit about the, this idea of Creole or Creolite as a kind of metaphor for music making in the 21st century and why that's useful for you? Well, I was asked to write about uh, the um, condition of 21st century music by the then editor of 20th century music. And it was a very interesting task because I started to get involved in periodization issues like the long 20th century mm. or the short 20th century or whatever. They everyone have. wants everyone wants every century to be long. <laughs> no one wants a short one, I've noticed. Well, Hobsbawm, he liked a short 20th. Oh, I, I, I miss. I should go back and check. Well, out that's stuff. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. He liked the short twentieth. That's the book. But anyway, I thought in the end, periodization was less about uh, time frames and more about subjectivation. I started to discover, and when I looked at Jameson's periodizing the sixties article, uh, Frederick Jameson, I said, "This is where I, I seem to be going with it," because it seemed to. And then I ran into Gayatri Spivak's article on world systems and the Creole in which she started talking about creolity as a means of better addressing the, the, um, what was going on in the world, the kinds of mixtures that were happening. And somehow that led me to, um, well, I've already been looking at, thanks to Alexandre Pierpont, uh, who just finished his wonderful uh, book on the ACM La Nuit, and he, uh, he introduced me to the Caribbean post-glissant scholars like uh, Patrick, and, and, and novelists like Patrick Chamoiseau, Raphael Confion, and um, they published a, a bilingual volume called Eloge de la Creolité, or in, in praise of Creolity or Creolization. So they're taking Glissant, Edouard Glissant a step further. And what they're saying is to, it's a matter of maintaining the creativity of the human that we have to form and recognize that we are coming from these multiple backgrounds and, uh, you know, I think the quote is something like the son or daughter of a Haitian and a German living in Beijing will be faced with multiple identities, multiple modes of being in the world. And so to maintain creative depth, that's what being a Creole is. And that's the point that Gatry Spivak was making, among others. So it seemed to me that this could be the condition of contemporary music. Um, and it already was, in a sense, because of the massive borrowing back and forth Sure. Uh, across and between and around where there are, there are so many references happening now that inform uh, contemporary music. 
that there's no sense of a real metropole anymore, like it doesn't all go back. You can't like trace it all the way back to, I don't know, um, Gregorian chant or something. You know, you have to find, you have to, you have to look more, you have to look at it more rhizomatically. Um, so it's in a way, although I don't, I don't use that uh, metaphor of the rhizome, it seems to me that right at the moment, that seems to be a part of what uh, creolization will be all about. And we're seeing some composers, I, I think the example, I don't know if I developed the Johannes Kreidler example at the time, mm. but there are people in new conceptualism who are trying to think about these issues as well. Um, so in a way, I'm going to say this, it was like when they gave Barack Obama the Nobel Prize. <laughs> it wasn't like for anything he had done, but it was like for what you could do now that you're the president and you're not a white president. So you could be thinking about these things. We hope you are. And so take this money and take this notoriety and do something with it. So in a way, my saying that contemporary music finds itself in a situation of coralization is something that I'm hoping that the field recognizes. Mm, you and want it to it, be taken up as a kind of charge. Well, that it, people have to revise their image of themselves. They have to mm. really expand their sense of identity, who they are and what their position is in the world. And I think that's possible. I think it's it's happening. And, but it's um, it's a slow-going process. And um, I'm, tr I'm trying to work at it through several ways. I'm trying to influence. And I've been you know, supported by some institutional frameworks for thinking about these things in terms of what they call diversity. Um, I've had some former students, musicology students and composers who have been thinking about these things and developing their own understandings of them. And in their own way, some of them, you know, like Ben Pickett or Ryan Dehoney, um, you know, uh, Rebecca Kim, uh, one new one, Jane Forner. Uh, I think they're, gonna, they're doing great things or they're going to be. And so that's, I think that's another, musicology for me looked like a zone, even though musicology, according to demographics, is 95% white, you know. Um, but it's still a zone where there are significant possibilities for change, I feel. Uh, so, I, so I try to align myself with mm. uh, the field. Although I don't, I still wonder about the extent to which I'm really considered a musicologist, but I don't really care. <laughs> Right. You show up to the meetings and you give I papers. go to the meetings, I teach all the students, and I have a great yeah. time. <laughs> well, I want to come back to that kind of like the direction of musicology, but I'm curious about the, you know, the Criolite thing. Like how, how do you see that as being, let's say, I, I don't know if the improvement is the right word, but a, a difference from, you know, like postmodernism, right? Like what, is, what does Criolite give us as a concept that postmodernism might not, or that other concepts that have been applied to, you know, the condition of art music in the last 30 or 40 years? Or... Well, the issue, I think the issue with postmodernism was a flattening of categories. Hmm. Um, and I was one that was interested in the idea of the Art Ensemble Chicago, let's say, being a postmodern organization. But it seems to me that a creolized organization is much closer to the mark because it allows us to take into account a, a fuller range of perspectives. Uh, I see. Uh, you know, it, it seemed to, I mean, postmodernism could be a predecessor or actually not really a predecessor because creolization comes along before postmodernism <laughs> in some ways, but, um, but, um, and certainly the idea of the Creole has a much longer history. Um, so I wasn't looking, I guess I'd be closer to a post-colonial perspective, but even there, the idea of actually decolonizing the arts. 
uh, seem closer to what creolization could give us. And the other obvious thing about it, for me, what, what I, the first creolization talk that I gave, which you have, which the article is based on, was done at Don Ashing in 2017, I think it was. And I had been to Don Ashing, and as you say, I'm in, I think it was 1976. That was the last time I'd been there. I went with Anthony Braxton, and we played, um, we played on the jazz night <laughs> as a duo. And, uh, but I thought it was very odd then that we were doing some of the same things, some of the same structures that people on the so-called classical side were doing. <laughs> and listen, so, and some of these people I was hearing for the very first time, I think I heard a Michael Finnessy piece for the first time, things of that sort. Um, so I was surprised at the affinity between what Michael was doing, what we were doing. Um, but that affinity wasn't really being recognized. But in a creolizing envelope of listening, and uh, the field, it would be recognized and understood. I see. And I think uh, even a lot of the people who wouldn't have been aware of that back then are thinking about it now. Um, so you have to sort of be prepared to stick it out over the mm. long haul in order to think about change. And so to the kind of, you know, I don't know, future of musicology question, you know, we, um, and I know you've read Lauren, Lauren uh, Kachikawa's essay, and which is, I talked with Lauren in an earlier episode of this podcast about mm. kind of how to how to fix or deal with the kind of current condition of the music school, um, and I and I'm I mean we don't have to talk about that, but I, I am curious about kind of where you see what are the strengths of musicology as a field going forward that are need to be built on versus the things that need to be left behind, like where where you want the field to be headed. Well, you know, um, I'm going to say that a number of people oriented me to their view of musicology. One was Jan Pazler, who I already talked about, my colleague there. Another was Samuel Floyd, uh, who, who developed the Center for Black Music Research and developed a number of publications. Probably some of those were, those were my first publications, uh, uh, which I'm still running on that. But then later, uh, Elaine Sisman, who was the president of the American Musicological Society at the time, and who was, who for some reason, being a total rookie at the AMS, put me on the presidential panel <laughs> <laughs> with Ruth Soley and Richard Taruskin. Wow. And her, and I said, God, this is like, <laughs> lab, could have been lambs to the slaughter time, you know, but they were very nice to me. But, but what I learned from that was that musicology we had kind of an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the larger intellectual world. Hmm. That is, no one was really looking to our field for transformational discourses, even though they all listen to music. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> the funny problem, right? So, um, and so that seemed to be a lot of the, the, uh, the topic of that time. I think that's starting to change now. I think people, first of all, are aware of the issue. I, I wrote um, the foreword to Jan Pauser's uh, edited volume, Writing Through Music, in which we addressed this issue of that a lot of the, the intellectual you know, uh, organs of, of the press, let's say uh, New York Review of Books or Atlantic Monthly or London Review of Books or whatever, you know, they don't really talk much about classical music or even less classical contemporary music, which is my sort of field within musicology. Sure. And so even though there are all kinds of discourses coming out of that, which would be uh, very salient to thinking about 
the future of the planet and where we are going. Uh, I'd say that in some ways the composers themselves have circled the wagons for a while and sort of not dealing with these kinds of discourses. There, there will be a public transcript about it and there will be a private transcript. And of course I would hear both. And so, <laughs> and they were very different. And so part of my plan was to make public the private transcript and encourage the others to really come forward with their ideas and also to come forward with their misconceptions so that everyone can talk about them. Um, so the reason why I see musicology as is, is being a place where that can happen is because of the commitment to scholarship, the commitment to, as I see it, uh, finding what you find and making that clear and being prepared to upend your understanding of, of what you, of, of your beliefs, to be prepared to, to encounter uh, considerable challenges to your beliefs. Great. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Will. Many, many thanks to George E. Lewis, the Edwin H. Case Professor of American Music at Columbia University. If you don't own it already, you should go out and buy his book, A Power Stronger Than Itself, The AACM in American Experimental Music. He's published a lot more than that, links to which are over at our website, soundexpertise.org. As always, I'm seated ovation on Twitter, and our producer and theme music composer D. Edward Davis is warm silence on SoundCloud. Please subscribe to Sound Expertise, and we would appreciate it if you would write us a review on your platform of choice. I'd suggest giving us five stars or 4.5 stars, or even if you really, really hate the podcast, I think four stars is fair. Next week, I'll be speaking with the musicologist Marion Wilson Kimber about American women and elocution in the 19th century. See you then. <laughs>